I had a conversation with about three different people this week. I did a video on Monday um, about uh, kind of uh, comparing where we used to be with demonic possession and uh, as it related to Jesus. And so I'm going to recap a little bit of that to give you some context. And then I want to explain where I'm at today. <laughs> it may not be where I'll be tomorrow or in a couple months, but I also want to explain my journey and how I got to where I am and hopefully give you guys something to help you sort of rebuild. Because one of the problems that people have when they start deconstructing from belief systems and from religion uh, is that twofold. Number one, they don't know what to do with the experiences that they had in the past that convinced them that they were right. <laughs> And then if they let go of some of that stuff, they don't know how to go forward in a way if they want to carry on with spirituality or a relationship with God or whatever. So, anyway, I want to start with the, the idea of confessing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Because that's been the primary message. If, if you want to boil down Christianity, there's so much that we don't agree on as Christians or the Christians don't agree on. There's something like 40,000 different denominations or something like that. Uh, certainly many of us have seen church splits over issues or maybe we left church and went to other churches that taught us differently or whatever the case may be. But the one core teaching, the one core foundational teaching of Christianity, I think, is this declaration and confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it's all throughout the scriptures, making Jesus Christ Lord and Savior, or Jesus Christ the Lord of your life. That's, that's kind of the key issue, especially in the evangelical charismatic world. Uh, have you made Jesus Christ the Lord of your life? Have you received him as your Savior? And those kinds of things. Now, Bible scholars will tell us, this is interesting, because I, I think it's really, really helpful if we let the Bible be what the Bible is without expecting it to be what it is not. And what I mean by that is allowing the Bible to be a byproduct of its culture and understand the cultural, cultural frames that the writers are using and that the early readers in the Roman Empire would have understood as it was being read. So I'll give you two scholars who really bring this out uh, well. The first one is called Peter Enns. His name is Peter Enns. Some of you may be familiar with him. He's a PhD-level uh, Bible scholar, and he writes really, really well and communicates really, really well with normal people. In fact, his podcast is called The Bible for Normal People. Because <laughs> sometimes when you read scholars, they're just talking to other scholars, and you have to have your dictionary out in front of you, or you have to Google the meaning of terms, because they're only terms that scholars use, and they're talking to each other, debating back and forth with each other on different issues. P.M.s does a really good job of speaking to what I would call lay people. The other scholar who brings this out, what I'm going to share in a minute, is N.T. Wright, and N.T. Wright's considered one of the top conservative Bible scholars. Now, both these guys are, are Christians, part of the what would be considered the mainstream or the evangelical movement, and both of them say, and this can be verified historically outside of those sources as well, that the term, the title, Lord and Savior, was something that in the Greco-Roman world would be attributed or given as a title of honor or confession of loyalty to Caesar. So in throughout the Roman Empire, Caesar was viewed as Lord and Savior. And to be a Roman citizen or to have loyalty to the Roman Empire was to confess uh, Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And N.T. Wright goes so far as to say that when Paul's going throughout the Roman Empire 
and he's preaching that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's making a political statement because by saying Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, he's actually saying, and Caesar is not. So it becomes a little bit murky, at least for me, about what actually was the intention of the original writers of the Gospels and the early Christians with their confession of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Were they thinking about it in the same way that we think about it as evangelicals, that it's something necessary to our uh, existentialism, to our eternal life? In other words, the typical line that you'll hear is, if you don't confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then if you die tonight, you're not going to heaven. And of course, we had this idea of hell and all that other stuff. And so... uh, My premise that I was giving out in my other video was that whenever we submit ourselves or surrender ourselves or deny ourselves to a authority outside of ourselves, we are giving away our sovereignty, we are giving away our freedom, and we are giving away our power. Whether that loyalty is sworn to a book like the Bible whether it is sworn to a political party or a national leader, um, whether it is something that we gave, because we grew up with this way, right? We grew up giving our power away or not having power in our families. Uh, our parents, you know, uh, were our authorities, and then teachers were our authorities. And then, of course, we have governmental authorities, judicial authorities uh, that preside over our lives. And when you get into the church, oftentimes there's a teaching on spiritual authority that whoever the top man is, whether it's the pastor or the apostle or whatever, uh, they're always right. That um, You have to submit to authority, that, that even if you don't agree or you don't obey those that have the rule over you, that then you're in rebellion. And we would throw out you know, that, that verse, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, which is a terrible translation, by the way. It's a King James translation, and it shouldn't say witchcraft there, but regardless, uh, you get the point. And so for a lot of people, especially if you get in those movements where you had to surrender your authority to the pastor, you had to surrender your authority to a spiritual father or a spiritual mother or uh, an apostle uh, or a prophet, you're surrendering outside. You're looking outside of yourself and you're allowing something else or someone else to tell you how to live. Now, the same thing becomes true when we surrender our lives, at least this was my premise, when we surrender our lives to the lordship of Jesus in the way that it's brought forth, and that can be problematic for us. And so what I was trying to address was this fact that I don't think that's metaphysically true, and I'm not even sure that that was the message that Jesus was communicating. Now, certainly that's the message that we get from our Bibles, but please understand that early Christianity was much more diverse than what's in your Bible. Um, There were many Gnostic writings. For example, if you read the the Gospel of Thomas, one of the reasons that scholars dismiss the Gospel of Thomas early on is because Jesus is writing to his twin, Thomas. And if you read that literally, then it would appear that two babies came out of Mary's womb, one Jesus and one Thomas. But if you read it mystically or look at maybe perhaps the core teaching of that book and message, Jesus is saying, what I am, you are also. Or like John says as uh, in First John, as I am, or as he is, so are we in this world. 
that we are the same. In other words, don't exalt me above yourself. Whenever in the scriptures they went to Jesus and tried to make him king over the people, Jesus resisted that. Of course, Jesus was crucified. He never did assume um, Herod's throne or whatever the case may be, right? So let me just share, because I get, I get, something that gets thrown at me a lot is that I'm too intellectual, that I've, I've just studied too much, too, too much learning has, has driven me away, that I'm using man's reasoning over God's reasoning. Charismatics love to use that. They love to quote the scripture in Proverbs, uh, trust in the Lord, Proverbs 3, 3, 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. Uh, they love to throw that one out at me. First Corinthians chapter 2, where it says, The natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are spiritually discerned. And they say, you're just trying to understand God with your intellect. But that's not actually how I arrived at any of the places or conclusions that I'm at now. Most of what I've arrived at has come through the combination of spiritual experiences that I've had that, frankly, some of them, if I told people, I'm not sure they'd even believe me. They might think I lost my mind through mysticism or spirituality, or that I was being guided by some wrong spirit or something somewhere. Uh, but I always tried to come back and balance that with study, um, what other people are saying as well, so that hopefully in my life what I've tried to do is achieve a balance between the right brain and the left brain, or between spiritual subjective experiences and objective critical thinking and logic, and, <clears throat> and bring those together to come to my own conclusions in my own quest and search for what's not only what's true objectively, but also what works. And sometimes what's more important to me is what's working and what's bearing fruit, not necessarily what's objectively true. Because, again, even among Bible scholarship, there's this argument. Now, let's come back to accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. If that was a political statement, like N.T. Wright and Peter Enns indicate in their writings, and history validates, other historical sources validate and support that, then the political context, the cultural context in which we live, has nothing to do with Lord and Savior, has nothing to do with Caesar, and has nothing to do with the Roman Empire. We live in a completely different uh, cultural context. We live in a more advanced cultural context. We know a whole lot more about the world and about things, at least from a scientific perspective, than they knew about in Second Temple Judaism or 2,000 years ago. And one of the things that, that I've contended, and I know Derek Day has contended, uh, we've done videos together on this, is that theology is the one line of study that has not advanced in 2,000 years. In fact, advancement in theology is seen as error because it's seen as departing from the faith that was once and for all given to the saints. So we're allowed to grow in progress in medicine, technology, communication, uh, our understanding of history, archaeology, our understanding of the cosmos, but we are not allowed to expand and grow in our understanding of God because from a Christian perspective, that's seen as departure from the faith. But let's be honest, the cultural context of confessing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior has nothing to do with us today. So it's divorced from its cultural context, but it's been perpetuated and advanced down through the centuries as the core teaching of the Christian faith, that you have to surrender your, your thoughts, your speech, your thinking, your emotions, your life experience, and what's in your heart, uh, or what it feels authentic to you, you have to surrender that and give that power away to another authority that is outside of yourself, that can tell you that's wiser and more powerful and smarter, uh, that can tell you how you are supposed to live. So for me, I, I want to go back to uh, <clears throat> about 20, yeah, it was 2015. So I was in 
real pursuit of mystical experiences and encounters uh, in 2015. Um, I started uh, looking at the Kabbalah uh, from a Jewish perspective, Hebraic Jewish perspective, started looking at Christian Kabbalah, started studying Kabbalists from um, the like 1200s and 1300s when Kabbalah was thriving, uh, not only among Jewish Kabbalists, but also among Christian Kabbalists. Uh, and I also started to dig deeply into the Gospel of John, which I'm going to look at in a minute. Prior to that, I kind of was along with the lines with everybody else, mostly focusing on Paul in my New Testament studies and readings. But I decided I was going to leave Paul alone and I was going to look at focus and look at the Johannine literature, particularly the Gospel of John. Uh, so during this time that I'm, I'm pursuing this, these mystical experiences, um, I'm waking up. Now, those of you that know me know I'm not a morning person. I don't think well in the morning. I'm grouchy in the morning often, often find myself getting up on the wrong side of the bed, whatever. Uh, not my best time. My high energy times are usually at night. That's usually when I think the clearest. Um, but I would be waking up at 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, and I just knew, I just felt this tug in my spirit. Now, I'm relating to you experiences that were coming through the context of where I was at at the time, my paradigm frame that I was at at the time. And I would get up and I would go into my meditation room, a room that I had set aside. I had a special chair in, in a place where I would go and sit and I would just sit quietly and I would do meditation and I would do some chanting on the names of God, which is, uh, with some of the Kabbalistic, uh, methods that I was learning. And then I would, I would try to bring my consciousness into my heart because <clears throat> Uh, about the fourth century when the Christian mystical movement was taking off, <clears throat> one of the goals was to bring your consciousness from up here to down here, to, to living out of your heart. So I would do these meditation techniques to bring myself into my heart. And when I would bring myself into my heart, I would have these visionary experiences. And in these visionary experiences, Jesus would come to me and would begin to instruct me in things in the Bible and instruct me in things that I had never thought before or believed before, but I could see it clearly throughout the scriptures as I'm having these encounters. And then I'm not exaggerating. I, I would come out of that and then I would think, okay, is this an original thought or did someone else have this? <clears throat> and invariably, uh, usually on the same day, I would pick up a book, uh, I would talk to somebody, that was more knowledgeable about biblical scholarship. Or one time even I got a name. Uh, I can't even remember. Uh, Maximus. It was Maximus the Confessor. I was just like, I've, I've heard that name somewhere. And I put it in Google, Google search. And I read his first document that came up. And it was exactly the things that, I, that Jesus was instructing me with it in those times. And this happened every single day for a period of months. And I felt like I had really arrived. I felt closer to God than I had ever felt before by communing with God, communing with Jesus in my heart. And then one night I'm, I'm asleep and I'm having this dream. And as I'm having this dream, I'm walking down this mountain and there's a line uh, like drawn down the mountain. Jesus is walking with me on one side and I'm on the other side. And we're going down this mountain, and as I'm looking at this timeline that's descending down this mountain, it, it was a timeline is what it was, this line, I could see that we were going back in time. And my mind, that mental capacity, the natural man that cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God, 
started to fracture at that moment, started to kind of fight against that. I'm like, this doesn't feel real or possible. I mean, I was really struggling with it, struggling with it so much in the dream that I woke up. I was physically awake with my eyes open, but as my eyes were open, I'm still in the scene. So I'm not seeing my room. I'm seeing the scene that was in my dream, but I'm fully awake. And I'm looking over at Jesus, and we're walking down this timeline. And Jesus says these words to me. He says, unless you let go of your concept of time and space, time and space, you will never be able to access the powers of the age to come. And when he said that to me, he disappeared and I was walking down the timeline by myself and then I became fully conscious and awake. From that moment on, I tried to perpetuate the same experiences that I was having before, meaning I would go into my meditation room, I would go through the same meditation principles of bringing my mind into my heart, doing the Kabbalistic chanting, doing all this stuff. And nothing. No Jesus. I would go into church services and where I used to be able to flow freely in the gifts of spirit, nothing, no connection, no sense of connection. Um, Nothing. Worship songs, no goosebumps, no sense of the presence of God. I could still pray for people and they were getting results They were experiencing things, but even as I was praying for them, I I wasn't experiencing anything. And the gifts of the Spirit kind of dried up a little bit in my life. And so you can imagine the crisis that threw me in, because I'm like, dear Lord, where did you go? You know, like, what have I done? Uh, uh, what, what's, what's happening? What's occurring? I'm confused. I don't understand. And it was dry, and, and it was really kind of like a dark night as I was trying to seek. Now, because I'd, you know, come from the faith movement and had sort of this foundation of faith, I just kept walking by faith, doing what I was doing, and not worrying too much about the absence of the presence of God. I had read mystics from the 12th century, 13th century, 14th century, Catholic mystics like John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila, uh, Madame Jean Goyon, um, Bernard of Clairvaux, and others. And they talked about these dry seasons and these dark nights that, that you would go through. So I wasn't too concerned about it. Uh, so I just kind of went on. And then Easter, this would be Easter 2016, I'm preparing my message and two things stood out to me. One was when Jesus appears to Mary and she thinks he's the gardener and she grabs onto him and he says these words to to her. He says, do not hold on to me. Or in the Greek, he says, don't cling to me. Don't cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go and tell my disciples that I am ascending to my father and their father, to my God and their God. And then in Luke's account, uh, he talks about the two, two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus appears to them in another form. And they do not recognize him. The Bible says that their eyes were restrained from being able to see who he was. And they're, they're walking with him on the road to Emmaus, and they're discussing his crucifixion and the historical events around his crucifixion. And then they stop and they break bread together. And it says when they broke bread together that that their eyes were open and they knew that it was Jesus. But here's the thing. The moment that they realized it was Jesus, he vanished from their sight. That always bothered me because I thought, what kind of game? What is this? Like, they don't know who you are. 
they can't see you, and then their eyes are opened, their heart is opened, and they understand that it's you. They see that it's you, Jesus, and you vanish from their sight. And I got it. I got those two things. That Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, in the story in John's account, is telling Mary, don't cling to me. Don't hold on to me. And the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, the moment they get the realization of who Jesus is, he vanishes from their sight. Now, I want to read something from John's Gospel that I think is important for us to hear. Um, <clears throat> I'm just going to I'm going to cherry pick a couple verses here. John 16 verse 7. He says, "Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper who is he's referring to the Holy Spirit here will not come to you." will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. And then you skip down a few verses, and in verse 12 he says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them right now. Now this is Jesus right before his crucifixion. He's telling them that he's going away. He's telling them that he's departing from them. And he says two very important things. He says, I haven't even really been able to tell you the things I want to tell you, because you can't bear them. You can't bear up under the weight of what I want to share with you right now. And then he goes on in verse 13 and says, However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own authority. On his own authority, authority is not in there. He will not speak on his own, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. And he goes on and, and says some other stuff in there. Um, so here's the point that I want you to get. Jesus said, actually, it's to your advantage that I depart from you. Now, was he just talking to the disciples or is there a metaphysical truth? Is there a truth in there that we miss, uh, perhaps because those verses are smashed into some other stuff there that people use to teach the Trinity and all this stuff, but that we kind of miss? Paul says this. I'm going I'm to give you one other verse um, in Colossians uh, chapter 1. In verse, uh, let's start in 25. He's talking about the church. He said, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. To fulfill the word of God. Now, what's the word of God? It's the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations. Listen to this. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to the saints. The word mystery there means the divine secret. The divine secret, which has not been told, you could say, from ages and from generations, it's been hidden, but now it's been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Watch this. Him we preach. Who's the him that he preaches when he fulfills the word of God? It's Christ in you, not Christ other than you, or Christ outside of you. Now, Jesus says it's to my advantage that, it's to your advantage that I go away, because if I go away, the helper will not come to you. Now, this isn't the idea that the Holy Spirit had to be, um, poured out like the Holy Spirit wasn't present, uh, or the Spirit of God was not omnipresent. The issue was he would not come to them or be able to commune with them or directly communicate with them. And he tells them, the Holy Spirit is with you. He makes it a present tense statement. The Holy Spirit is with you and will be in you, right? 
And spirit has no form. In other words, spirit is omniscient. Spirit is everywhere. Watch this. Spirit does not occupy a point in space. And if spirit does not occupy a point in space, then because space-time is a continuum, then spirit also does not occupy a specific place in time. Watch this. Unless you let go of your understanding of time and space, you will never be able to access the power of the age to come. And the form of Jesus that I had been relating to vanishes. And to be honest with you, I really haven't seen a vision of Jesus since. Now, here's what we're told by the Christian church when it comes to accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We are told that the way that you do this is you believe, watch this, in the historical person of Jesus who occupied space in time and space. You believe in a crucifixion event which occupied space in time and space, something historical. You believe in the resurrection which occupies time and space. And if you believe in that Jesus and you follow the teachings of that Jesus and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you're actually working within the construct of time and space within your own consciousness. If you make Jesus something outside yourself, Lord of your life, as though Jesus is God, then you're causing God to occupy time and space. So even in a vision... When I'm seeing Jesus here and me here and Jesus is talking to me, there is separation, which implies space. And so in a very real way, I think those eight months that I was being tutored by the God-formed Jesus, I believe it was the Spirit. I believe it was my higher self. I believe it was my my imagination interacting with transcendental wisdom that came from the Creator because that was my constructs. That was the only way those messages could come through. And I was being taught and prepared for the moment that Jesus would be walking down the mountain with me and say basically the same thing He said to His disciples. It is to your advantage that I go away. Because if I do not go away, you cannot enter the realm of timelessness and spacelessness, which is the Spirit. I have many things to say to you that you cannot bear. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will lead you and guide you into all truth. And I realized that as long as I've got a projection of my mind out here and I'm locating God out here in a vision or in the sky or someone else, somewhere else, then what I am doing is I am creating the illusion of separation and I am denying my own divinity and my own union and my own connection with what Abraham Hicks calls source 
and source energy. And what John calls in the Gospel of John, the Word, the Logos. In the beginning was the Logos. And without him, nothing was made that has been made. He's the source of all things. And in him is life, and that life is the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, the Scripture says. But look that word among up, or if you have a good Bible, it'll have a footnote on the side. It can also be translated, the Word became flesh and dwelt within us. And the word dwelt there is the word tabernacled. The Word became flesh in us and tabernacled in us. The source of all things, the source power of all things, the Logos, is not limited to the location of one man who walked in time and space 2,000 years ago. The location of the Logos, this is what John is saying in his Gospel, the location of the Logos is within you. And when you go within, you behold His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In other words, you are connected to Source. You are connected to Creator. You are an emanation of the light and the life of God. That's who you always were. There was never a time that you weren't that. There was never a time that you weren't God manifested in the flesh. There was never a time that you weren't an aspect of the Logos manifested in the flesh. There was never a time that you were not connected to Source and to Creator and to Source Energy. And he's talking about beholding. Go back and read the Gospel of John and you'll see that it's the come and see Gospel. That if you can stop reading it literally, Jesus says in John 14, he says, these things have I spoken to you figuratively or in a parable or in a story figuratively. These things have I spoken to you figuratively. I did not speak plainly to you, he says. And then later in chapter 16, he says, I have things to say to you, but you cannot bear them. Now, John's Gospel was not written by John the Apostle. That's almost a a scholarly consensus. It was written by a community of people that were early Christians who were using the name John, and perhaps because they were following the revelation that John the disciple gave them. But if you read it carefully, it says, the Word became flesh and dwelt within us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father. And then the next thing you see is you see two disciples coming to Jesus after he's baptized. And they say, they say to him, Teacher, Rabbi, Teacher, where do you abide? Where do you live? Where are you staying? And he says, Come and see. Now, if you read that literally, you're thinking they want to go check out his apartment. They want to go see his living room. They want, they want, they want to know what his address is. They want to know where he's staying or where he's abiding. But if you read through the whole Book, then when you come to John 14, he says, in my father's house, there are many rooms. He says to Thomas, do you not know that I am in the father and the father is in me and it's the father that does the works. I am in the source and the source is in me and it's the source that does the works. And then he says, you will become a habitation. Abide in me and I will abide in you. The spirit will abide in you. In other words, his teacher He's the teacher in the Gospel of John, not the Lord. 
He's the teacher and the guide that is to guide us into the revelation of the divine source that is within us, that we ourselves are the habitation of the Spirit, that we have connection to divine consciousness, to divine wisdom, and to divine power, but we cannot access that unless He goes away from us, that it's expedient for us, it's to our advantage that He goes away from us, and if He goes away from us, then He's no longer locked into time and space. He's no longer locked into history. But the Jesus of the Scriptures becomes a pattern, an example for us of who we are and what we can become. And we do not express who we are and we do not become what we can become if we give our lordship over our own lives away to someone or something else. We live life from the outside in that way rather than from the inside out. Now, I want to share one more experience that I had that will tie into the teaching that I did on the Jesus egregore. The word egregore just means a group thought form. Uh, You can find it on my page. I, I don't want to cover all that again. So I'm medi- I'm having meditation. I'm still, this is after this, because this is a growing revelation for me in my life. But I'm having astral projections and times of meditation. And I'm seeking to enter the heavenlies, the heavens, as it's revealed to me as the structures of what I see within the scriptures. And so... I would put myself in this mental state of being in the throne room and of Revelation 4 and 5. And so I could vividly envision the throne, the elders, the living creatures, the sea of glass all around me in this place of meditation. And I'm not looking up at the throne in this experience. And I hear a voice that says to me, is the man Jesus sitting on the throne? And I answered, no. And then the voice says, what do you see? And I'm thinking about the scriptures and it says, a lamb as though it was slain, having seven eyes and seven horns. And the voice said, what is that? And I said, it's a symbol. And it's like, that's right. It's symbolic language. What does it symbolize? And for me in that moment, the way I spontaneously answered what I said, eyes, seven eyes, seven being a number of fullness, eyes represent a point of view. And all things are relative to your point of view. All things are relative to your point of view. We're having a very different experience right now, even though it's a shared experience. I'm, from my point of view, I'm talking, I'm looking at my phone, I'm seeing myself. From your point of view, you're hearing me, watching me, or listening, however you're listening. It's the same experience, but different points of view. So eyes represent points of view, and seven eyes represents a full, a fullness of all that is. An understanding of all that could be understood. And I know we say horns represent power, but at that moment I was thinking about horns come out of the head. And so for me, the horn represents an extended and exalted consciousness, an exalted mind. 
So when the, and, and a, a lamb as though it had been slain. And then here's the kicker. When you read in the scriptures, it does not say it was on the throne. It says, I saw before me a lamb as though it was slain, having seven eyes and seven horns in the throne, in the midst of the throne, in the center of the throne, and in the living creatures, and in the elders. Now you can understand that two different ways. You can understand it in a literal way, that the lamb is in the center, and the elders are around, and the thrones up here, or you can understand it in a metaphysical way, that consciousness that we call the Christ consciousness is in the throne, but it's also in the living creatures, and it's also in the elders, and according to Colossians 1.27, it's also in you, and it's also in me, and why is it a lamb as though it's been slain? Because we don't access that because we've been cut off from it, primarily because we've been surrendering our power and our authority and giving it away to entities and things that are outside of us. The Christ consciousness is not in a book. The Christ consciousness is not in a person that lived 2,000 years ago. The Christ consciousness or the spirit of God or the consciousness of spirit or the all or the source, or the Logos, is in all things. But if you don't live from that perspective, if you're not accessing that perspective, then for you, it's as though that consciousness has been slain. So I have this experience. This is all coming out of that experience. And I want to have another experience. So I go, and this time I leave, I feel myself, I feel my, my, my light body, soul body, spirit body, however you want to understand it, leave my physical body. And I ascend and I see a giant Jesus. A giant Jesus. And I have an intuitive knowing. Because, see, they're not worshiping Jesus the man in the book of Revelation. But I see this giant Jesus that's being worshipped and I have this intuitive knowing that that is not, that Jesus that's sitting in the astral plane is not the Christ consciousness. It is a group thought form that has been created by group consensus, that has been worshipped and served by people who give their energies to it for 2,000 years. And I realized... I'd been serving that thought form. And if you break with that thought form, if you break with the group consensus, it influences others to persecute you. Why? Because that thought form needs devotion. It needs human energy to exist like a parasite. And I saw the difference between what's pointed to in the Gospels as the Christ consciousness and the egregore, the thought form, the group thought form, the orthodoxy, the consensus, the human creation, the human divine creation that sits on the astral plane and sucks devotion, sucks in mental energy, sucks emotion, sucks life from people because they disconnect from their own source power and source energy within and surrender and yield to that. And my mind was blown. And this was a Wednesday, and we had service on Wednesday night, and I decided, I'm going to preach this. I'm going to teach this. Whew. 
And I go up, and it's February, it's middle of February in Colorado. I go up, and I'm shaving. And my son Josiah, who loves creatures and loves animals, he comes in and he says, Daddy, Mom got me a new pet, come see it. I'm like, what, did they go to the store? What, she got him a pet. What, what did she get him? What kind of, what, he likes reptiles. What kind of reptilian creature does he have? And I come out and he has this beautiful, beautiful butterfly. Beautiful butterfly. I'm like, where did this butterfly come from? And my wife says, well, I heard some rustling in a tissue box. And I open up the tissue box and there's a butterfly in the tissue box. Now, let me give you some background on the tissue box. My son had collected caterpillars back in May or June of the previous year. And he had put them inside this tissue box. It was an empty tissue box. And put some leaves in there and hoped that they would germinate and turn into butterflies. They didn't. Now, here's the thing. I looked it up. The lifespan of this particular generation of butterfly, from egg to full-grown butterfly to reproduction and death, is a maximum of three months. The gestation period is around seven to ten days or something like that. This is seven or eight months later. This butterfly manifests inside this tissue box. The next day, I had a prophet from England, uh, Derek Brown, message me. I messaged him about it. He said, I had a word years ago about the sign of the butterfly and how it was going to speak to reformation and awakening and a new move of the spirit. And I messaged Aaron Abke at the time, and Aaron Abke was writing a book on Christian mysticism. And he says, dude, I was up till midnight last night talking about the caterpillar turning into the butterfly. I just finished a whole chapter on the chrysalis of the caterpillar turning into the butterfly. And now you're sharing this with me, and I sent him pictures of it. But that Wednesday night I went to church. That Wednesday night I decided to release this revelation, which I don't normally do. I usually let things season for a long time before I release them. And we walk into church, and Josiah is with his butterfly, really proud of his butterfly. And he's holding it like this, and the butterfly leaves his hand, and he flies and perches on the ceiling right above the pulpit where I was speaking. And for an hour and 20 minutes, I preached this message that there's a difference between Jesus, the egregore, the thought forms, the Jesus in our imagination, the Jesus that we think we're relating to, the Jesus that we're worshiping, the Jesus that we're exalting, and the mind or the consciousness of Christ, where Paul says in Philippians, which is the oldest Christian creedal statement, Philippians chapter 2, scholars tell us, is the oldest Christian creedal statement, let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus, that who being in the form of God did not think it robbery to be equal with God, but took on the form of a servant. So what he's saying is, is for that mind to awaken in you, you have to recognize your own equality with God, and you cannot recognize your own equality with God if you are worshiping worshiping something as God and giving your power away to something as God and giving away your sovereignty and your freedom to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And I preached that entire message, and I released that revelation around Colossians chapter 1, that the Savior, the Messiah, is in you, the hope of glory. And I, and the butterfly stayed up there the entire time while I delivered that word. And when I was done with that word, the butterfly flies down, lands in Josiah's hand, and Josiah takes it home. Now watch this. I think he got that caterpillar in June. This experience happened in February, the number seven. That butterfly lived for seven days. 
before it died. Now, to me, that's an irrefutable sign and a wonder that convinced me I was absolutely on the right track. And I came to a point at some point where I was like, Jesus, if if I'm wrong, because I'm telling people they don't have to make you Lord. I'm telling people that the Jesus that they're relating to, even though it's real, is not the eternal Christ of glory or even the same Jesus that walked 2,000 years ago, but it's the, it's the astral divine human creation of a thought form of millions of people that has been perpetuated down through the centuries. If I'm wrong, if this is all demonic signs and wonders, then where are you? Why did you leave me walking down that mountain? Why did you let me go down this path without intervening and reappearing? Or perhaps it's just that would take me back and I'm advancing in my consciousness. And perhaps maybe this revelation, if you can receive it, is going to help advance you in the expansion of your own consciousness as well. I think I'm just going to leave this right here. I hope this helped you. I hope this was a blessing to you. I hope this cleared some things up for you. I can tell you this. I can tell you this. It's taken me four years to sort this out. To come to the place that I could cleanse myself of all the ugly energies that are attached to Christianity. To cleanse myself from the energies of racial superiority to cleanse myself from the energies of dominionism and imperialism, to cleanse myself from the energies of blood sacrifice, to cleanse myself from the energies of human sacrifice, to cleanse myself from the energies of a God that ordered uh, in the book the destruction of the Canaanite uh, culture, to cleanse myself from a group of orthodoxy that has perpetuated the worst crimes in human history against the Jews, against the pagans, against the witches, and even against other Christians. It is a bloody mess, and those energies are still attached to that egregore. And if you're attached to that egregore, you're still attached to those energies. And I had to cleanse myself from those. And I'm going to tell you something right now. I feel a stronger presence of God right now while I'm talking than I've ever felt when I was talking about Jesus. Call it the anointing, call it the presence, call it my own source energy or Christ in me manifesting, whatever it is, I'm experiencing it with a greater depth of power and intimacy since I cleansed myself from those energies. So anyone that tells you that you cannot have a relationship with spirit or you cannot have a relationship with God or you cannot discover your own divinity or your own connection with source energy without coming through some confession of faith that depends on a historical event locking you into time and space and connecting you to those energies. I'm telling you right now by my own experience, they're wrong. Anyone who tells you if you go out and mess with things like tarot cards or, or do energy work or, or follow these new age paths or whatever, and they tell you that's going to lead you into demonization and lack of fruitfulness and stuff, I'm going to tell you right now, they're wrong. Out of my own experience, out of my own study, they're wrong. So what's the answer? The answer is to claim back your power. The answer is to claim back your sovereignty. The answer is to cleanse yourself from anything that's preventing you, that's keeping the lamb inside of you, the Christ inside of you, as though it's crucified and as though it's been slain. And I think John was trying to send us a message. I think Mary is a picture of the church. And Jesus is telling the church, don't cling to me. Because until you change your concept of time and space, 
you cannot taste the powers of the age to come. And I believe I'm living in a moment in my own life where I'm barely beginning to partake of the power of the age to come. Thank you for listening. Thank you for commenting. Thank you for participating. God bless you and namaste.